the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. 602-508-0960 is the number. If you want to get in on the conversation with Brandon Weikert and me, you are welcome to do so. Brandon joins us every Monday at this time. His book last year, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. He's the publisher of the Weikert Report. We do international and a little domestic uh, every Monday, and um, he is uh, awaiting the publication of his brand new book, which he just recently sub- submitted, which is on our foreign policy uh, with regard to things China and Middle East. Brandon, happy Monday. I hope you had a good weekend. Oh, I, I did. Happy Monday to you, too, and uh, uh, it's great to be here. Good. Thank you. Glad to have you. I... Um, I was looking at uh, your web page, the Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com, and you're, you're doing a little new thing with video, aren't you? Tell us a little yeah. bit about this. I, saw, I watched the whole thing on the Abraham Accords. Well, I want to get into it. Talk to me about it. Thank you. Yeah, well, basically, uh, you know, I've, I've been getting a lot of readers telling me you've got to do more video or in the age of video, you know, and I'm a writer at heart, so it was kind of like pulling teeth with me, but now I'm getting the hang of the video editing and whatnot and some of the graphics, and I'm having fun with it. So every week I'm going to try to do a video essay. I guess it's a essay or a lesse. I don't uh-huh. know how you would say it. Yeah. Uh, but um, so today we did the, I did the uh, Abraham Accord uh, because I was doing some research, and in the course of research I found some remarks from Tony Blinken, who's the current Biden Secretary of State, in which he was praising the Abraham Accords. And so I thought, you know, Maybe it's not all bad. Maybe maybe we'll be able to get people in the Biden team uh, to to you know hop on board what I think was a low hanging fruit Trump left them, which is the stabilization of Sunni Arab Israeli ties in a way to stabilize overall Middle East and also to contain Iran. And that's what the video is about. It's a ten minute video. Uh, I'm narrating it, uh, and uh, you know that we get in. I get into sort of the details of the accord. I get into what Trump was trying to do. I talk about how I briefed Avi Berkowitz and uh, uh, Kushner in May of 2019 on, on the potentials of what, what the Abraham Accords could do and what they couldn't do. And then I also talk about Biden and kind of what his team is thinking and, uh, you know, where, where they want to go and where I think they should go and where I think they shouldn't go, namely going back into the Iran nuclear deal. But it's not all bad. Not all bad. No, I... Um... I want to recommend it to people. If you want a 10-minute pressy on what the Abraham Accords were, uh, how they came about, why they, in many of our views, were hugely successful and groundbreaking, that's the way to do it. Just go to theweikertreport.com. It's 10 minutes worth your while. It's like a PragerU on on the Abraham Accords. Really good. I want to dig into it in a minute with you a little bit, Brandon, some of the stuff you said in that – that video um, blog or that video Great. presentation. Before I do, and I know it's not the area that um, you 
you you focus uh, on uh, lately or have put most of your focus on lately, but it's kind of of a piece and, 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 and you're good at all of this stuff. There is an interesting pattern with this administration that is worrisome to me. You heard voice um, – well, you hear voice to it from Jen Psaki every day. You heard voice to it yesterday when Nancy Pelosi was talking about the crisis at the southern border here. And she says, we're trying to clean up the mess the Trump administration left us. It 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 really does appear – and you mentioned this a little bit on the Iran and Sunni policies of this administration or the previous one. It really does appear – that there is a thinking at this White House, a public policy thinking at this White House, that if they just do the opposite of what Trump did, things will improve, almost as if they believe the liberal talking points right. without really having done any any impact studies on what they might yield, kind of giving giving their um, the philosophy of liberal left-wing talking points the concrete uh, college try – uh, but learning while we're earning, we're or earning while we're learning. I should say, um, it's not working well. Not at the southern border. You you can say whatever you want, right? About the southern border and Donald Trump, but it wasn't this bad. It wasn't this. There was no need to send in the Federal Emergency Management Administration. Right. right. Well, I think I think that everyone's forgetting. So Trump, and, you know, I was critical of this in the American Spectator back in 2018. I I thought that the child separation policy, just as a cynical optics exercise, was very bad for Trump. No question. Uh, I understood. No question. I I mean, obviously, we had to to spend a year defending it. Obviously, it was a bad optic. Yeah, well, I never never did. Okay. But but obviously, there was more to it. And what you find is that, actually, the Trump team, led by Kushner, again, I've been critical of him on domestic politics, but... On the deal-making aspect of trade and foreign policy, Kushner was actually a big help. And uh, he was instrumental in getting deals done with the Mexican government. Uh, and one of the deals that he helped to, to, to broach uh, what related to um, getting Mexico to seriously start curbing uh, the flow of illegal immigrants right. into the United States from 2018 to 2020. Right. And that was behind the scenes. Nobody really reported on it. Uh, there was really no interest to talk about. That was sort of too inside baseball or, uh, you know, how the sausage is made. Right. But it was very important because it created a, a, a linkage at the diplomatic level between the U.S. president at the time, Trump, and the Mexican leadership. And it was positive, and it was a positive feedback loop. At the same time, publicly, everyone knew Trump was very tough on immigration. And the visible appearance of being a real stickler about illegal immigration really deterred a lot of the illegal immigration from happening. And then the ones that did try to come were met by force with the Mexican regime rather than the United States National Guard or the United States Border Patrol. So you had a real build-out. And it's, it's a similar pattern to what you saw in the Middle East. And there's a lot of similarities here because Trump and his team had created diplomatic interlinks between the Israelis and the Sunni Arabs and they were building out capacity between the three sides in order to generate a positive long-term policy outcome, in this case, stabilizing the Middle East, deterring terrorism, and containing Iran. And now, you're right, the Biden team seems intent to kind of hit the undo button on everything, orange man bad. Upside is, my friend Josh Rogan, who writes for the Washington Post, I've been talking to him a lot lately, and he says that there's actually three groups in the Biden team. One are the Hawks. 
One are the, the engagers, and the other are the Biden PR political people. And right now, this, there's a battle going on for the soul of the Biden administration. And the only upside here is that the Biden hawks, on whether it be immigration or foreign policy, they have teamed up with the Biden PR team. And these two groups seem to be triangulating uh, the Biden uh, engager or appeasement or orange man bad crowd. So whatever Jen Psaki's saying in public, just know behind the scenes there are multiple parties, and not all of them are inimical now to what we were trying to do over the last four years. They may not like how we did it, but they're not inimical. And that, to me, is some silver lining in an otherwise pretty bleak situation. Good points. Now, um, I, I, I have a feeling that it's the messengers and um, the engagers that are going to win out over time here just because there's a weakness at the top that's going yeah. to be filled probably by the messengers and the vice president's office. Just my sense. We'll see. But let me, yeah, we, yeah. we'll see. But let me tie two things together that do, does does broach um, more of, of where you've been casting your eye lately. And it's this. Uh, and it's not getting a lot of play. You occasionally hear about it from uh, border officials. But it's the um, it's 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 that it's not just Mexicans and Guatemalans and Hondurans coming through our border. Son of a gun, it's Iranians. Talk to <laughs> yeah. us about yeah. that. Well, so, you know, in 2018, when I was still living in Washington, D.C., the church I went to, uh, First Baptist Church of Alexandria, we, we, had a, we had a group of Cuban refugees that we were, we were helping to take care of, and one of them told me, um, you know, when he came over from Cuba, he had to go into Trinidad, and then he had to seek asylum, in the U.S. from Trinidad, and he said that, you wouldn't believe this, Brandon, he said it was me and the three other gentlemen from Cuba, and then he said we were thrown on a boat from Cuba to Trinidad, and it was all Somalis, Nigerians, Pakistanis, uh, Arabs, and Iranians. He said we were the only real Hispanic you know, people on the boat besides the boat crew. Hold that said, thought. Let me let me take the break. This is this is, I think, hugely important and hugely important for understanding border security and obviously uh, the Middle East as well. Hold that thought, Brandon, let, while I take the break, and we'll be right back with more from yeah. you on this, and then uh, we'll talk about more of your video on the Abraham Accords. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Brandon Weikert. The Weikert Report dot com is his website. Our number, if you have questions for Brandon, six zero two. Five zero eight zero nine six zero. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon Weikert is our guest. His book is Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. He has a new book on the Middle East and other hotspots coming out in the fall. And, uh, he is the publisher of The Weikert Report, uh, theweikertreport.com. Uh, Tony, don't go away. I'm going to do the movie thing with Brandon in a minute, too. Brandon, we are having fun with the audience. I'll, I'll throw you the question in a little bit. I want to close out this, um, this point you were making, though, or driving at. So we'll come back to movies in a second with you. But it had to do with my question about uh, something I've noticed since 2000, I think, five, when Iran started direct flights to Venezuela. But it does turn out we are still seeing Iranians crossing the border. You were telling us this story 
about a Cuban family uh, that you you um, you knew in Alexandria. Yes. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. So basically, they had, um, or it was it was the, the gentleman and he and three others had come across from Cuba to Trinidad, and they came from via boat. And when they got to Trinidad, they requested asylum, but to the U.S. government, and they were granted it. But he told me, he said, Brandon, he said it was a huge boat, and there were a lot of people there, and the only people that were Hispanic were me and my three friends from Cuba. Wow. Everyone else were Pakistani, Arab, Iranian, Nigerian, Somali. And he said, and they couldn't get, uh, uh, they couldn't get asylum. Right. And he said they ended up illegally going over to Venezuela, catching up with coyotes, who then took them up north with the intention of bringing them through the broken southwestern U.S. border. And so we have a lot of people flowing into the country and have for many years uh, who are not only just coming from Latin American countries, they are in many cases coming from Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nigeria, the, the Arab states, you name it, and we don't track them. In fact, Stephen Emerson has written books in the early 2000s about how Hezbollah was sneaking their operatives in through Latin America, up into the broken southwestern border, where they form sleeper cells in the United States, waiting to be activated for the day when hostilities between the U.S. and Iran erupt. And so this is a very serious problem. We don't know who's coming into our country, and we don't know how to stop them. We do know how to stop them. We don't want to stop them. Uh, but it's a problem, and it will come back to bite us in the rear end if we're not careful. You know, the funny thing you say, it's not funny. The interesting point about what you say is, um, we don't know who's coming in. The news reports, every news report talks about numbers arrested or detained. And right. I guess that's all you can do. But right. what worries me is the numbers not, because I know that they right. are huge. I've seen it with my own right. two eyes going down to the border. I've seen people running across yeah. the border that we did not detain. Yeah. I saw some we detained. I saw the ones we didn't. We marked the ones we detained. We have no idea who the ones are that we don't. Right. And I think it's very important to remember that all it took was a little bit of public displays of toughness from a president consistently over four years, coupled with very strong, though quiet, diplomacy with the Mexican government that actually got the Mexican government to do the right thing. And I think it's very interesting. The socialist president yep. of Mexico, yep. AMLO, right. loved Trump right. and refused to acknowledge Joe Biden as the president of the United States. After he won the election, no, Manuel Labrador so has said this is a Biden-inspired crisis, a Biden-caused crisis. Yeah, uh-huh. it is. Yeah, because he's hitting the reset button, and we didn't need that. There were things that Trump did that that he could be taking credit for. Biden, like like I said, the low-hanging and Labrador. I mean, it's in Labrador's interest not to have this. He doesn't want the cartels right. strengthened and making money. He doesn't want the immigration right. problems from from the from the Triangle countries. That's right. That's right. And so, I mean, Biden, for me, I've been trying to tell the people I know affiliated with Biden, you know, just take the low-hanging fruit that the previous administration left you. You don't have to give them credit even. But for the good of the country, just build off of it instead of trying to reinvent the wheel. And some of them seem to be listening, but there is this big fight shaping up in the administration. And so far, because Biden himself as president has not come down one way or the other, you have this sort of listlessness and inertia. And that's very dangerous right now. No, it's a good word, listlessness. The president listeth. Uh, someone could write a book about Joe. I was watching, man, I was watching a, um interview with him from about a year ago. It's amazing the level of decline from a year ago. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm dealing with a family member right now who has Alzheimer's and, and uh, 
you know, I don't want to, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going right. to, you know, but I do see when I see Biden speak publicly and then I speak to this family member. You see those eyes, don't right. you? I've had it too. You, you see and, those and eyes. The mumbling, yep, yep, the mumbling, yep. and the, you know, repeat. It's, it, it's frightening. All I can say is, thank God, apparently he does have, you know, people who are technically competent around him, although ideologically, who knows. Um, but the fact that there is all this internecine fighting right now behind the scenes, that's a big problem in and of itself. Remember, Trump was given a lot of grief because of all the personnel changes, mm-hmm. and he should have been in some cases. Mm-hmm. But I still think it's more chaotic now behind the scenes under Biden than it was publicly in Trump. Oh, that's an interesting point politically um, and historically. If you think about it, say what you want about the, um, uh, how should we put it, some of the inconsistencies perhaps in the Trump administration, some of the some of the seat-of-the-pants right. moves, but you knew they were his. Yeah. Right, for the most they, part. You yeah. knew they were, yeah. okay, for the most part, you knew they yeah. were his. I don't think yeah. anyone thinks I, I, Biden's in control of anything right now. I think the issue, the issue, I think that's the right, and I think that's the key here, is whereas Trump was sort of playing to his own whims, uh, which was bad in some cases, sure. I've told you before, sure. having experienced the personnel office sure. under Trump, that was the greatest weakness of his administration. And one of the reasons he didn't want to win a re-election, he had wrong people there. Uh, but, but Biden, because Biden is not making decisions in a decisive manner, you have all these other parties below him in the administration duking it out at the kind of bureaucratic level, and, and they're canceling each other out. Yep. So any kind of momentum that the country needs is not being generated because these three or four factions are just, you know, agitated against each other. The president needs to make a decision, and he can't be reached right now. Yes, I do think people like to have the palace intrigue who's in charge, this person, that person, uh, the chief of staff, Kamala Harris. I'll tell you who I think is running the show. It's just my sense, given what I see her say, given what I don't see Joe Biden saying. I think Nancy Pelosi. I do. I think she's running the show. (laughs) I thought it was very telling that she was the one calling for the nuclear codes to be yeah, removed from yeah. possession. That would be that would um, be that's right. You know, that's right. I, I think I, yeah, I think though that he has a group of people, Biden, who are going to protect him publicly and behind the scenes uh, to insulate him from these decisions, so he doesn't trip up. And I think that there is a, a group, a cadre within the administration, from what my reading, who are the real decision makers. It isn't just Kamala. This is very much a collective. Uh, now, they're fighting with each other, but ultimately, if two of the three groups can combine, and they are starting to on issues, they'll be able to drive policy. But it's going to be very fickle uh, because, obviously, you know, it's going to be swinging these groups between each other on different issues. And so my hope is that the Kirk Campbell kind of hawk wing on these issues can win the day. I, I think uh, it's the best we can hope for, but it's so eerily yeah. reminiscent of early 80s Soviet yeah. Back room, yes. prop Turnendo. up, prop yes. up Andropov to look good, and we'll take or chin, you know, uh, yeah, yes. Brandon. When we come back, let's do that low hanging fruit that you were talking about, and and, yeah. and apply it to the video you just published on uh, the Abraham Accords, because I, I I think there's okay. a lot to it there to mine. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Brandon Weicker, and we'll do the movie thing. Don't go away on that either. Foreign policy question six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. As we do every Monday, we check in with Brandon Weikert, foreign policy 
uh, is um, the area of most expertise. We do a little domestic with him as well. Uh, Brandon, at the Weikert Report, which you published, you did this video. We were making mention of it previously in the hour on um, the Abraham Accords, which is a great 10-minute, <coughs> excuse me, pressy <coughs> overview of what they were, how they came about, and why they were um, successful and, and, and why you could build on that success. The question is whether this administration, through ED Fix, is willing to trash them uh, because it was done by the previous administration and not build on them. You want to say a few words on that? Is that a fair summary? Yes, and uh, in, you know, in the piece, I, I articulate exactly, uh, you know, what they should be doing in the Biden team. Uh, it sounds like um, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is the, the keenest to build off of it, uh, the Abraham Accords. And so my hope is that he can sort of navigate the troubled waters, because you're right, there is a political movement within the Biden team, within the Democratic Party, to simply label anything Trump did as orange man bad and erase it. I think what would happen, though, they're going to find out in Biden's team, if they do click the undo button on all these initiatives, they may be able to undo them, but they're going to find in a year or two, holy cow, we actually needed them. And actually, if the, if the Biden team, and I don't support this, but if the Biden team is really intent on jumping back into the Iran nuclear agreement, I think there's an argument to be made, and I, I would have gotten into this more in the video, but I didn't want to go over 10 minutes. Um, and I think there's an argument to be made to the Biden team that, hey, if you want to get Iran on board, you've got to have a unity and strength from yourself and your allies, the Israelis and the Sunni Arabs, so that it forces Iran to not try any funny business. Because as it stands, if you're denigrating the Sunni Arabs, distancing yourselves away from the Israelis, and then trying to play buddy-buddy with the mullahs in Iran, all that's going to do is let the Iranians run roughshod over the region, push us out, destroy the Israelis, and keep the Sunni Arabs down and let the Russians and Chinese in. So even if you do want to do this, this ridiculous nuclear deal with Iran, you first need to have the Abraham Accords solidified so you're coming at it from a place of unity and strength. It's a really good point you're making about the way to bring a rogue nation in from the cold. And the way one would think is rational to do that is to show that they have no other choice. That's right. That they're surrounded right. by a regimes, a series of regimes that are not willing to give them much breathing room That's and right. a uh, mothership, in this case, the United States, exactly that, right, right. that is not willing to give them a long leash, but is willing to give them a leash. Um, right. And I suppose if you're not willing to do that, you're willing to let the rogue regime run the show. Is that what you're saying? Yes, and I think we should remember Jamal Khashoggi uh, in 2018 when he told the BBC uh, that the Iranians were the equivalent of Nazi Germany and Saudi Arabia was playing the role of Winston Churchill's Britain in 39, and that it was essential that Saudi Arabia go to war in Yemen because the Obama administration in 2015 refused to protect the Yemeni government, which was pro-American and pro-Saudi, and instead allowed for the Iranians to go marching into Yemen and uh, empower the Houthi rebels, who are now running you know, amok in the region, blowing up the oil refineries, targeting uh, Saudi neighborhoods, and trying to threaten American, Israeli, and international shipping. 
And so uh, Jamal Khashoggi, of all people. I was just going to uh, say, Khashoggi was, said that, huh, before MBS yes, took over, huh? That's right. Uh, so he said it when MBS was taking over. This is when, in the beginning, Khashoggi was pro-MBS. Uh-huh. And so he was saying that MBS was right, as the minister of war, to go into Yemen, even without American backing, because the, the Iranians are the closest thing to Nazi Germany in the Middle East, and Saudi Arabia is going to play the role of Churchill's Britain. And so I think that a lot of Saudis today still view it that way. And I think that we can build off that, and we should. And I hope that Biden doesn't throw them under the bus. All the problems we have with them notwithstanding, they're still better better than the alternative, I think, which is an Iranian hegemony, which equals Russian and Chinese hegemony over the region. And we cannot have that so long as we're pulling oil and natural gas and those uh, oil choke points are running through the region. We just can't have it. Let me shift you. We're going into break. Let me shift you to Asia for when we come back. There's stories yeah. that North Korea is not returning Biden calls. Right. And then there's this, what uh, David Riaboy calls uh, BS, and I can't say it out loud. This story out of the Politico, top U.S. officials are warning with increasing urgency that China will soon invade Taiwan, a timeline they say, has accelerated by Trump's repeated provocations of Beijing. Boy, it's as as if Trump's still president. Let me have you respond to all that when we come back. We'll do China and North Korea with Brandon Weikert when we return. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon Weikert is our uh, Monday guest, our regular Monday guest. We do international relations with him. Uh, Brandon, um, I want to shift to Asia for a second. News over the weekend was leaked that North Korea is not responding to Joe Biden's entreaties or phone calls. Does that mean anything? Does it bother us? Does it concern us? And then there are these reports that China's contemplating moving on Taiwan because of, of all people the former president. Uh, take it however you want it, sir. Uh, for the Biden-North Korea thing, uh, this was expected, uh, even if Trump had not uh, had not lost in uh, the last election. There was kind of a cooling of, uh, or rather, a, a, a cooling of relations between Trump and Kim. Remember, 2018 was the last significant move between the two sides. You know, so I don't think, I don't know if anything more would have happened, even if Trump had won election Biden can I interrupt uh, something on that yeah North Korea seems to be one of the few countries that understands America is America regardless of the president does that make sense yes yes I also think it's important to note Kim knows our political class Trump was not of it yeah and so Trump threw him a curveball with the Singapore conference in 2017 because I I know for a fact I was involved at the time with the DOD uh, we were going to war in 2017 with, with North Korea. Yeah. And then Trump, Trump threw the Hail Mary yeah. and said, let's, let's meet in Singapore. Yeah. And Kim was shocked, and so he did. But we were going to war, I know for a fact. We were okay. going to war. Okay. And um, Trump stopped that from happening at the last minute. Kim understands the political class here, and he knows Biden very well, and he knows how to play hardball with Biden. And he also knows that Biden and his team are not interested in doing direct talks with North Korea. And so, and which is ironic because North Korea's nuclear program is far more advanced than Iran. And there's Biden is meeting with Iran, you know, people directly, but he won't meet with Kim, who actually has shown himself over the last three years to be more reasonable than (laughs) the Mullahs. You know, know, and by the way, 
this links into China. So yeah. Kim Jong-un, despite being considered a puppet by most of the Western media uh, of the Chinese, is not a Chinese puppet. He's been killing all the pro-Chinese elements in his inner circle since he took over from his father in 2012. And so what Trump did by going to him threw a curveball at the Chinese. They were not anticipating it because they thought, hey, we could control Kim, failing that we could kill him. And that's why Kim Jong-un murdered his brother with a nerve agent in Malaysia. He was being protected, the brother, by Chinese state security. And Kim knew that they were coming to take him out because the Chinese didn't think they could control Kim. It was a regime change operation underway that Kim stopped. And so there's that. In terms of China and Trump, I think we have to look at it, what Politico's saying. It's not, you know, I like Dave Reboy a lot. He's a buddy. But I think it's not entirely BS. Here's why. You have to take the Obi-Wan Kenobi approach. It's true from a certain point of view. Trump was brilliant in dinging the Chinese over trade, over tech, over Taiwan, the South China Sea, space. You name it, he was good at that. Where he was bad was the follow-through. Because even as he was trying to do the trade war, and people like me were saying this means you have to decouple entirely from China, Trump was still trying to do the mother of all deals with the Chinese. So that completely undercut what he was doing. And I think that actually gave a little bit of wind to the Chinese sales. And what it did, though, was it highlighted, and our friend David Goldman has been talking about this for years, what Trump's trade war did, though, was highlight critical weaknesses within China's system vis-a-vis trade with the U.S., notably things like semiconductor chips. And now they are moving to plug those gaps because they were given a reprieve, first by Trump doing the trade deal in 2019, which I said was a bad idea, and now by Biden, who appears to be very interested in stabilizing and normalizing relations with China uh, on the long, in the long run. And so that's a problem, because what that's doing now is Beijing is saying, aha, this is our moment of weakness for the Americans. We can close those critical gaps they were trying to exploit under Trump so that no other American president could exploit those weaknesses again. And we will use those plug leaks to now leapfrog the Americans. And that is precisely what is happening. And I think that I've been saying for the last year, I think in another, in another two years, we will be in a shooting war with China over Taiwan. And I think that there is going to be a space Pearl Harbor event that will likely be related to this. And I think that we could be watching right now, I think 2020 was really this, the birth of the Chinese century. And uh, it's downhill from here unless the Biden administration can fundamentally reorient its policy toward being one of a hawkish one toward China, not one of engagement. And I don't know if we're capable of doing that. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, the immediate, uh, probably too clever by half notion that comes up is Nixon to China in reverse, in the sense that we have thought of Joe Biden as an appeaser of China. Right. Is it possible he can be the one to show him a strong arm? I don't know. I, but the Taiwan scenario terrible. you paint is the one that we sweat over is a nightmare. It is. And I think if Kirk Campbell and people like him in the administration, who are I know for a fact are hawks on China, especially because Campbell got burned in 2010, Campbell was the guy in Obama's circle who said, look the other way while China's building these islands in the South China Sea. Maybe we can get a deal with them. I know for a fact Campbell said that was his biggest mistake in government, and he was going to work to rectify that. And I believe he's serious in that. And he has a serious role he's playing in in Biden's Asia policy. So the hope is, again, that the faction of hawks can beat out the engagers. And one thing we know, this is from my colleague Josh Rogan, not from me. Uh, Josh Rogan has said to me, that the one thing he knows is that the, the Biden PR people who want to protect Biden's political image, 
love when he goes after China in public because his approval ratings go through the roof. And so for that very cynical reason, that group is aligning with the China Hawks and the Biden team to squeeze out the John Kerry, Susan Rice engagers. And that's a good thing for the, for our country. But in the, in the long term, I think if we continue on this pace, I think that by the end of the decade, we will be living in the Chinese century. And I think we will have gone to war with China over Taiwan. And by the way, I think we're going to lose that war at this rate. I really do. And it's not very pretty. Well, I, 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 I hate to give you advice, but if you could do a 10 minute thing on this, you know, China's so I, I'm working on it. Yeah. China's so hard for so many to understand. Because, you know, there's so many different uh, cultural and, and, and poli- for, for a lot of cultural and political reasons, uh, and everyone feels like they're playing catch-up. Gosh darn it, if we don't play catch-up on this, we're going to find ourselves looking at, um, you know, September 10th, 2001, and wondering, yeah. you know, what's, what's radical Islam. Or December 6th. Yeah, or December fifth, nineteen forty one and wondering you, what yeah, exactly. All right. I, I have like forty five seconds left with you. Oh. I have a okay. theory that is unproven. And the theory is you can tell something about someone if they tell you what their three most watched movies are. Not necessarily their favorites, but the three they've seen the most. So for example, my producer Bill, the three movies he's seen the most is Benji, Herbie the Love Bug, and the Apple Dumpling Gang. <laughs> What three movies have you seen more than any other? Well, I think when I talked to you about this originally, I said the first one was Casablanca. But yep. the more I think about it, the first one actually would be The Godfather, the uh, original. Yeah. The second one would be The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. And the third one would be Batman Begins. All right. When we visit next week, you're going to have to – I understand The Godfather. I don't understand Batman Begins and The Empire Strikes oh. Back, although – I can understand why you specialize in what you specialize with those issues. <laughs> yes, well, when you think about them. where those bat diseases come from and what empires mean, okay. Brandon Weikert, God bless you. TheWeikertReport.com. Now we know what we're talking about next week. All Thank right. you for everything. Have a good week. Well, that's a great song, actually, from a movie a lot of people have seen over and over again, which kind of is the definition of insisting upon itself, because that's from the movie Groundhog Day, which is about living your life over and over again. But this thesis I have is that maybe you can tell something about someone by the three movies they've most watched. And by the way, that's twice we've now heard Godfather and Casablanca, one from a listener, one from Brand. Tony and Phoenix call. Tony, what what are the three movies you've seen the most? Well, hey, Seth. Appreciate Hi. you having me on. You bet. Um, well, Godfather would be on mine. Interesting. Uh, I love mob movies, and it's arguably the best movie ever made. Better than Godfather 2? Uh, you know, I would have to say yes, but I do. I really you recognize that that's too, a debate. So. Okay. Yes. No. I, it's definitely uh, uh, controversial. Okay. There's no question that Godfather Three was a clunk. Right. But um, between Godfather One and Two, it's the only example that I know of where the sequel is better than the original. Arguably, arguably better than the original. Sure. At least as good. That's At least sure. as good. Okay. Um, Another one would be The Thing from Another World, oh my gosh. Uh, 1951, based on uh, Who Goes There, okay. you know, like the 82 version with Kurt Russell. Okay. Uh, maybe the most influential sci-fi horror, sci-fi horror flick ever made. Wow. Um, for, for many reasons. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, it, being made back then, the special effects were lousy. It was James Arness' first big screen role, by the way. Oh, okay. But uh, 
the writing, the direction, the editing, the cinematography, even by well, most people just know this is the thing in case they're scratching their heads. This is the movie known as the thing. Well, no, the thing was the 1982 version with Kurt Russell. Okay. I thought it was the same bad. movie. All right. Anyway, okay. Well, it's based on the same story. Okay. But of okay. The 82 version had much better effects. Okay. The uh, third one, kind of a, a toss up, but probably I'd have to put Dr. Strangelove on there. Okay. Uh, I'm, I, you know, Kubrick was one of those guys. I, I never really liked a lot of what he said, but I sure loved how he said it. So Mario Puzo, Ben Hecht, and uh, Kubrick. The screenwriters. Sure. Okay. What does that yeah, tell I, us I, about I you? Oh, heck if I know. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe my thesis <laughs> doesn't work. I don't know. <laughs> maybe you can't tell something about someone by the three movies they've watched the most. But maybe you can. Classics, in your case. Classics. Uh, yeah, I guess they are. I hate to think that The Godfather is a classic. No, it is, yeah, though. No, you have old. to. You have to think that way now. Because yeah. you look at Al Pacino then, and you look at him now, Marlon Brando no longer with us. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right, well, we'll play with this, Tony. We'll, 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 we'll figure this out. We'll see if I'm on to something or not. I think you might be. Thanks, you Seth. think I might? Okay, good, good. That's the question. Not your three favorite movies per se, but the three movies you've watched the most. What does it say about you? In my producer Bill's case, it's Benji, the Apple Dumpling Gang, and Herbie, the Love Bug. I'm trying to figure that out. Dogs, cars, and Don Knotts. We'll be right back. Debbie Lesko coming up on The Border Crisis.